Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I am your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. In this episode, we're going to talk about a major event that's happening this week. You guys, it's Coronation Day. Or if you're Elsa or Anna, if you're Anna and you've overslept and they're knocking at your door and you're like, it's Coronation Day. That's how Anna calls it in Frozen. And I know this because I have a daughter who spent several years being obsessed with Frozen. I'm not going to subject you to me singing the Coronation Day song, but um, I am singing it in my head right now as we speak. So we're going to chat about coronations, as Anna called it, or coronations throughout English history and the Tudor coronations specifically. So I have to tell you a funny story before I before I start. The first time I went to London, um, I was just out of college and I like on my second day, I wanted to go to Westminster Abbey. And, you know, obviously I read tons, all of that. That was like one of the highlights. So once once I lived in London later, I realized that the trick this is a trick for those of you visiting London. Uh, if you go for service. You don't have to pay to go in because you're there for the service. Of course, you don't get to like walk around and look at everything, but you get to you get to sit and like listen to the music and be part of the service, which I think is a way more awesome experience than just kind of pacing around with all of the other tourists looking at um, graves and things like that. However, it's your choice. If you do go to Westminster Abbey and you want to go to service, the other pro tip I will give you is get there early. And ask to sit in the choir if you really want to hear the music properly. Because um, if you get there early enough, you can actually make a request. You can ask to to sit in the choir. And um, and it's like mind-blowingly awesome. So that is my my pro tip. However, the funny story I want to share with you is, so I was there, I was like right out of college. Um, first time there at the side door, um, paying to go in and and I said um, to the person who was selling the tickets, I said, now I'll get to see where everybody was coronated, right? <laughs> and it's response. So coronated is not actually a word, right? And uh, 
he looked so stern. He looked down at me and said, no one was coronated or marinated or any other aided. They were crowned. I was like, oh, sorry. So um, I was very much put in my place. And that is something that I, I often go back to, to that. I don't know. It's just a funny phrase that, that enters my head sometimes. No one's been coronated or marinated, any other aided. So um, no one's being coronated this weekend. There's a king and a queen being crowned. No marinating. Anyway, that's my funny story. Before we get started, this is your reminder about TutorCon. So you guys, TutorCon is like four months away. And this is important. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I have a payment plan option available right now for, for TutorCon where you can pay over the course of four months. But I'm taking that down because I need to have received the money by the time TutorCon happens, ideally a little bit before so I can pay the final bills. So I'm taking down the payment plan in a couple of weeks, depending on when you listen to this, like sometime around May 20th, I'll take it down um, so that, you know, the payments all pretty much come through by the time TutorCon happens. So um, this is your warning, really, <laughs> that uh, if you want to come and you want to spread the payments over four months, uh, this is the this is the time to to get in there and make that happen. So TutorCon, three days of tutor goodness, talks, entertainment, feast, all kinds of good stuff, new friendships, all of it, uh, September 8th through 10th at the Mount Hope Estate, which is on the grounds just outside the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, September 8th through 10th. So englandcast.com slash tutorcon to learn more, englandcast.com slash tutorcon. Okay, so we are going to start out by talking about the coronations at Westminster Abbey throughout history, and then talk about some Tudor ones specifically. So let's talk about Westminster Abbey. Since its founding by Edward the Confessor in the 11th century, Westminster Abbey has been the setting for royal coronations, making it an essential part of British history with a rich tapestry of tradition and ceremony surrounding this momentous event. Westminster Abbey was founded in 960 AD as a Benedictine monastery by St. Dunstan, the Archbishop of Canterbury. However, it was Edward the Confessor who transformed the monastery into a grand abbey church in the 11th century. Edward intended the abbey to be his burial place and a symbol of unity of the English people under a single monarchy. In 1066, following his successful invasion of England, William the Conqueror was crowned king in Westminster Abbey, beginning the long-standing tradition of holding coronations at this historic site. The ceremony took place on Christmas Day. It was marked by an unfortunate misunderstanding. Unfortunate is an understatement. When the crowd's cheers were actually mistaken for an attack, causing the king's soldiers to set fire to nearby buildings in a panic. So that's a coronation gone wrong. Over the centuries, various elements were added to the coronation ceremony, such as anointing of the monarch with holy oil, the presentation of the crown and scepter, the recitation of oaths. The core aspects of the ceremony as we know today were established by the 14th century. The coronation of Henry III in 1216 marked the first recorded instance of a monarch being anointed with holy oil during the ceremony. This anointing symbolized the king's divine right to rule and his status as a representative of God on earth. Henry III was only nine years old at the time, 
And this coronation was held during a very turbulent period in English history, marked by the ongoing conflict with French forces. Also, there was trouble at home. The Baron's Revolt had just happened. The Magna Carta had just happened. So it was important to have this symbol of him having this divine right to rule and being the representative of God on earth. In 1377, the coronation of Richard II took place amid a great display of wealth and extravagance. Again, it was a young king. He was only 10 years old, and his advisors sought to emphasize his divine right to rule by adorning him with the finest garments and jewels. The lavish procession through the streets of London featured elaborate pageants, feasts, and entertainments showcasing the splendor and power of the English monarchy. The Tudor dynasty, which we'll talk about more in depth in a couple of minutes, saw several notable coronations at Westminster Abbey, beginning with Henry VII in 1485 after his victory at the Battle of Bosworth Field, ending the Wars of the Roses. His successors, Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, and Elizabeth I would each be crowned in Westminster Abbey, further cementing its role in the story of the English monarchy. More on that in a minute. Following the tumultuous period of the English Civil War and the interregnum under Oliver Cromwell, the monarchy was restored in 1660 with the coronation of Charles II. This event was a pivotal moment in English history. It marked the end of the Republican experiment with the return to hereditary monarchy. The ceremony was a lavish affair, with great emphasis placed on the restoration of tradition and the divine right of kings. Charles II's coronation was a celebration of the nation's return to stability and order after years of political upheaval. In 1838, the coronation of Queen Victoria heralded a new age of constitutional monarchy in Britain. As the nation underwent rapid industrialization and social change, the role of the monarchy evolved to become a more symbolic one, more representative. Victoria's long reign saw significant developments in the British Empire and the emergence of the modern British state. In 1902, the coronation of Edward VII was a historic event for several reasons. It was the first British coronation to be captured on film, allowing people across the country and the world to witness the pomp and ceremony of the occasion. This technological innovation marked the beginning of the mass media's involvement in the coverage of royal events, further transforming the role of the monarchy in modern society. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953 was also a groundbreaking event. It was the first British coronation to be televised. This unprecedented access allowed millions of people around the world to witness the ceremony in real time ushering in a new era of global awareness and engagement with the British monarchy. The Queen's coronation showcased the unity of the British Commonwealth and the continuity of the monarchy in the face of a rapidly changing world. Throughout its history, Westminster Abbey has stood as a symbol of the enduring power and continuity of the British monarchy. The hallowed walls of the Abbey have witnessed the coronations of kings and queens for nearly a millennium, becoming a living testament to the nation's heritage and the evolving role of the monarchy. As society has evolved and democratic values have taken root, the role of the monarchy has also changed, and in recent years there's been an increasing debate over the relevance of the monarchy in modern Britain, with some questioning the need for such elaborate and costly coronation ceremonies. 
However, the pomp and circumstance of these events continues to captivate the public's imagination, serving as a reminder of the nation's history and the unbroken line of kings and queens stretching back through the century. So now let's talk a little bit about Tudor coronations, starting with Henry VII. Henry, of course, ascended the throne after defeating Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, which marked the end of the Wars of the Roses, and he was the first monarch of the Tudor dynasty. His coronation was an important opportunity to demonstrate his legitimacy and consolidate his rule. As the ceremony approached, London was abuzz with excitement. Streets were cleaned, the city was adorned with tapestries and banners displaying the new king's arms. The coronation procession began at the Tower of London, where Henry and his entourage traveled by barge along the river to Westminster. Crowds gathered to catch a glimpse of the new king who was dressed in crimson velvet with a fur-lined robe. Once at Westminster Abbey, he attended a special mass at the Abbey, followed by the highlight of the day, the anointing and the crowning. The Archbishop of Canterbury anointed Henry with the holy oil on his head, breast, and shoulders before placing the crowd of St. Edward upon his head. The coronation banquet that followed was, of course, a lavish affair with courses of roasted meats, pies, and jellies. It was a showcase of wealth and power for the new king, and it was a true feast for the senses. Now, unlike his father's ceremony, Henry VIII's coronation was a joint ceremony with his new queen, Catherine of Aragon. Of course, Henry VII waited to marry Elizabeth of York for several months after he was crowned. And many people say that's because he wanted to show that he had you know, the legitimacy on his own. So the decision to share the ceremony with Catherine of Aragon was a powerful statement of unity and partnership between Henry VIII and his bride. The city of London was once again transformed with the streets strewn with sweet-smelling herbs and flowers and colorful pageants celebrating the royal couple's union. The procession from the Tower of London to Westminster was even more extravagant than his father's. Henry and Catherine rode in separate, richly decorated litters, the actual ceremony itself was similar to his father's, with both Henry and Catherine being anointed and crowned. However, there were some key differences. First, the couple was seated on a raised platform and their thrones were adorned with cloth of gold. This added an extra layer of majesty and sort of grandeur to the proceedings. The banquet that followed their coronation was truly one for the ages. Over 2,000 guests were invited. The feast featured countless dishes like swan and venison and even peacock. There were also lavish entertainments, including jousting, masks, and dancing late into the night. Born on October 12, 1537, Edward VI was the long-awaited male heir of Henry VIII and his third wife, Jane Seymour. His birth was met with great celebration across England as it solidified the Tudor dynasty's succession. Edward ascended to the throne at the tender age of nine, following his father's death in 1547. As the first Protestant king of England, Edward's reign was marked by the continued reformation and religious strife. Edward's coronation took place on February 20, 1547, at Westminster Abbey. It was only about three weeks after his father had died. The event was organized by the Lord Protector Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, and Edward's uncle. The ceremony was carefully designed to emphasize the new Protestant faith incorporating several key changes to the traditional Catholic ceremony. 
On the day of the coronation, a grand procession escorted the young king through the streets of London amidst much fanfare and celebration. The procession showcased the splendor of the Tudor court with nobles dressed in elaborate attire and musicians playing festive tunes. At Westminster Abbey, the ceremony was led by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, a staunch Protestant who played a pivotal role in the English Reformation. Edward was anointed and crowned with the traditional regalia, but the ceremony featured a notable absence of the Catholic Mass, which had been a central part of previous coronations. Following the ceremony, of course, there was a magnificent banquet held at Westminster Abbey. Lavish decorations adorned the space. Guests enjoyed a sumptuous feast featuring a variety of meats, pastries, and sweet delicacies. The young king sat on a raised dais observing the festivities and accepting the loyalty of his subjects. So then, of course, he was followed by Mary I, the first queen regnant of England. I know some of you are going to try to make a case for Matilda, and I get that. However, I'm going to say that that was in the middle of a civil war, and I think it's hard to say that she was actually a reigning queen. So Mary, first queen regnant in England, daughter of King Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Mary was well-educated and accomplished, but her life took a dramatic turn when her parents' marriage was annulled and she was declared illegitimate. Throughout her early life, she faced numerous challenges, including separation from her mother, the loss of her status, and the royal succession. She remained a strong Catholic and persevered in her efforts to regain her rightful place in the line of succession. So following Edward's untimely death in 1553, she successfully navigated a complex political landscape to secure her claim to the throne. Her coronation took place on October 1st, 1553 at Westminster Abbey. She was a devout Catholic, so of course she put back in all of those Catholic elements that had been removed during Edward's coronation. So before Mary could even claim her rightful place on the throne, she faced a formidable challenge in the form of Lady Jane Grey, the teenage cousin who was named as Edward VI's successor, in an attempt to maintain Protestant rule. Lady Jane Grey was known as the Nine Days Queen and was placed on the throne by powerful Protestant nobles led by John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. However, Mary's unwavering determination and the support of the English people who rallied behind their rightful queen ultimately triumphed over the usurpation. Mary's forces, led by loyalist nobles, marched towards London while public opinion turned against the young and inexperienced Lady Jane Grey. As Mary's claim to the throne became increasingly undeniable, key political figures abandoned Lady Jane Grey's cause, paving the way for Mary's accession as the first queen regnant. This dramatic struggle for the crown underscored the volatile political and religious environment that defined Mary's path to power and mostly her reign as well. So her coronation, once she got there, began with a lavish procession through the streets of London with her riding in a triumphal chariot adorned with gold and jewels. The procession was accompanied by musicians and entertainers celebrating the new queen. At Westminster Abbey, the ceremony was presided over by Bishop Stephen Gardner, who was a key supporter of Mary's Catholic cause. The Catholic Mass was reintroduced. Mary was anointed and crowned with the traditional regalia, signifying her commitment to the Catholic faith. Following the coronation, again, an extravagant banquet was held at Westminster Hall. Guests enjoyed a feast fit for royalty, 
with exquisite dishes and elaborate entertainment, and Mary was seated on a raised dais, graciously receiving the loyalty and admiration of her subjects. Then in 1559, we get another turning point in English history with the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth, ascending to the throne following the death of her half-sister. Her reign would usher in a new era of prosperity and artistic achievement and religious stability known as the Elizabethan Age. But before the coronation, Elizabeth followed tradition by residing in the Tower of London for several days, accompanied by her court and her council. The elaborate preparations for her coronation began in earnest with the construction of pageants and displays along the route from the Tower to Westminster. The streets of London were adorned with vibrant tapestries, banners, and other decorations to create an atmosphere of celebration and anticipation. Hey, here's a fun fact. John Dee, who was the royal astrologer for a while, well, I don't know if that was his official title, but he was her advisor. He was... um you know, a scientist. I've done lots of episodes on him. He had the largest library in all of Europe. He was a leading academic and scientist, but he was also into the occult. That's one of the things I find so fascinating about this period is, you know, before the Enlightenment, when science and astrology and looking for the philosopher's stone was still part of chemistry and it was all mingled and we hadn't yet separated out the spiritual side of things from the scientific side. There hadn't been that that wedge or that wall between spiritualness and straight science uh, like came out of the Enlightenment. So anyway, John Dee was also an astrologer. He had forecast her date, her coronation day, um, based upon what the stars said was best. So I think that's kind of a fun fact. So on January 14, 1559, Elizabeth left the Tower of London for her coronation procession through the city accompanied by a retinue of nobles, counselors, and foreign ambassadors, the young queen traveled in a lavishly decorated open litter, allowing her subjects to catch a glimpse of their new monarch. As she progressed through the streets, Elizabeth was greeted with cheers and applause from the throngs of spectators who had gathered to witness the spectacle. The procession featured several elaborate pageants designed to emphasize the queen's virtues, and her divine right to rule, and the dawn of a new era in England. The first pageant at Gracechurch Street depicted a biblical story of Deborah, a wise and just female judge, who led her people to victory. This allegorical representation sought to draw parallels between Elizabeth and the biblical figure, emphasizing her wisdom and ability to lead her people. At the entrance of the Royal Exchange, a second pageant presented the queen with a tableau of classical virtues, including justice, temperance, fortitude, and prudence. These virtues were personified by female actors who held golden gifts representing their respective attributes. Elizabeth was also presented with a book on governance written in Latin, further emphasizing her education and intellect. On January 15th, Elizabeth was crowned at Westminster Abbey in a ceremony that combined traditional elements with adaptations reflecting her Protestant faith. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Reginald Pole had actually passed away just hours before her ascension in November, and many of the other high-ranking Catholic priests didn't want to perform the more Protestant service, so the role of officiating the ceremony fell to Owen Oglethorpe, the Bishop of Carlisle. The ceremony began with the traditional litany of the saints, which was sung in English rather than Latin to reflect her Protestant beliefs. 
She was then anointed with holy oil, symbolizing her divine right to rule. And following the anointing, she was invested with the royal regalia, including the crown, scepter, and orb, and took the traditional coronation oath. After the ceremony, she processed from Westminster Abbey to Westminster Hall for the coronation banquet, where she was greeted by her subjects and foreign dignitaries. The banquet was a lavish affair, as expected, featuring a variety of sumptuous dishes, fine wines, and musical entertainment. So I think this, then leading into James I, is a good place to mention the Stone of Destiny, because many people took it as a prophecy fulfilled under James I. The Stone of Destiny is an enigmatic symbol of Scotland's royal history, and it has been used for generations to inaugurate kings in Scotland. Its origins, shrouded in mystery, have been lost to time. However, in 1296, England's King Edward I stole the stone from the Scots and integrated it into a fresh throne at Westminster. And it was designed to really show, you know, how England totally destroyed the Scots. They even took, you know, such an important symbol for Scotland and put it into their own coronation ceremonies, which, you know, is really ballsy, I think. Uh, It's also pretty rude. From that point on, it became an essential part of the coronation ceremonies for England's and later Great Britain's monarchs. So on a fateful Christmas day in 1950, four audacious Scottish students managed to steal the stone from Westminster Abbey in London. You could say steal it back. After a three-month-long adventure, the stone resurfaced 500 miles away in Scotland. There's actually a really good movie. I think it's on Netflix called Stone of Destiny that looks at this adventure of the stone. Um, and, And anyway, I highly recommend it. It's called Stone of Destiny. So fast forward to 1996, the stone finally made its official return to Scotland. And now it lives in Scotland. But in 1603, when James I became king of England, it was still in England. And contemporary writers acknowledged a prophetic connection between James I becoming king and the use of the stone in the coronation. John Speed translated a Latin verse associated with the stone. If fates go right this stone, wherever tis pight, the Scot shall find and there his reign assigned. Which basically means that it retains its significance wherever it's located. A 17th century herald and author, Francis Sanford, summarized this theme. The coronation of the king and queen, preceded by divers promotions to titles of honor and performed with all the magnificence and ancient rites of the English kings at Westminster, 25th of July, being at the Feast of St. James, 1603, by the hands of John Whitgift, Archbishop of Canterbury, where the antique regal chair of enthronization did happily receive with the person of his majesty the full accomplishment of that prophetical prediction of his coming to the crown of England. So there we have it, a prophecy fulfilled. For now, we're going to stop it here. Hop into the Tudor Learning Circle, tutorlearningcircle.com, to discuss this and all things Tudor. Also, hey, do you ever go on YouTube? Because I have a YouTube channel. You should totally check it out. If you just search for my name, Heather Tesco, you'll find it, or the handle is HTesco. I should probably make it something more tutory, but like, to be honest, I've had that channel since like 2007. I just have only started recently doing more with it. Um, and I feel kind of attached to that name and I don't really want to change it. 
So anyway, H-T-E-Y-S-K-O, you can just search for it. Um, or you can just search for Coffee and History because that's the channel name. And so, yeah, check me out. I just put a video up. Um, I do regular histories, mysteries. I just put one up on who killed the princes in the tower, which I thought might get some some interesting comments. Um, we'll see. So, yeah, just check it out on YouTube and subscribe. Why don't you? So. I think that's it. Oh, and remember TudorCon tickets, englandcast.com slash TudorCon to learn more about that. So I, I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. If you are in England, I hope you're having a, a nice long weekend. And I will speak with you again very, very soon. Thanks so much for listening. And I will chat with you again soon. Blow northern wind, sandal baby sweating. Blow northern Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.